question for you this morning. This will be the the question that we're going to wrestle with. The question is, is Christianity progressive? Is Christianity progressive? And when I say that statement, your mind is immediately going to go to a definition of progressive that I want you to get rid of for a minute. When I say the word progressive, you, you probably think liberal left politics. Progressive. Um, I think that's an unfair commandeering of a really good word. <laughs> progressive. The definition of progressive, you look it up, or progress, I should say, is forward or onward movement toward the destination. That's progress. So if, if you ask someone if they are progressive, uh, what you really should be asking them is, are you an agent of progress? Like, are you trying to move things forward? Are you trying to make things better? Unfortunately, that, that word has been commandeered, um, and it's now a political thing. But I want you to, just want you to get rid of that this morning. And I want you to ask the question, is the Bible and Christianity and the gospel, is it a progressive message? Is it actually moving humanity forward, or is it degressive, moving humanity backwards? And there's a bit of a debate about this in our culture right now. I don't know if you know that. There's a debate about whether Christianity is actually progressive, whether it's actually what our culture needs to, to continue to evolve and continue to move forward, or if it's actually holding us back. We live in a post-Christian culture. What that means is that we are um, slowly but surely becoming less and less of a majority, Christianity is becoming less and less of a majority worldview in our country and in the West. And as we are becoming more and more post-Christian, um, people are seeing Christianity, the message of the gospel, the Bible, as being more and more and more restrictive to what would be deemed as progress, human progress. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Here's some of the kind of things that I hear often throughout the week on media. Uh, Christianity and other religions' frameworks may have been helpful in their day, in order to get us to the age of enlightenment and the era of modernity, but now we've outgrown them. Progress is like new wine, and Christianity is like old wineskins. It's a like a restrictive jacket. It's keeping our, prog our progress from moving forward in our culture. It no longer fits. It's like that first car that you got when you were a kid. Uh, you were 16, and you were just so thankful to have anything with four wheels, right? And that was great then, but now you're an adult, and now that, that thing is sort of, you've outgrown it. This is very much how, how many in our culture are viewing Christianity. It's, it's something we've outgrown. It's too restrictive. It's not progressive enough. It's outdated. It's rigid. It needs updating. It needs a fundament, fundamental facelift. Progress demands, they would say, progress demands a more flexible, more tolerant, more inclusive framework than the Bible gives us, right? Has anybody heard that? Am I the only one hearing that every day? Okay, okay, we all hear it. So you, that leaves you with a few options as a Christian, if you, if you believe that's true. First option is you can change what the Bible says to be less intolerant or uninclusive or rigid. Okay, well, we're not going to do that, right? Uh, you could remove the Bible's authority. You could say, yeah, it is intolerant, it is inclusive, it is not progressive, but it, it's not really in charge of our lives, so it doesn't really matter what it says. And people are doing these things regularly. Or you could explain away its, its contextual relevance, meaning uh, that was just writing to them. It's not writing to us now. Yet Paul said wives should submit to their husbands, but that's not really relevant for our day because that was his culture. And a lot of liberal Christianity is doing that too. So how we come at passages like chapter 3 of Colossians that, that seem to be or would be thought of by certain individuals as being not progressive uh, really matters. Because if we come at them from a place that, that says, well, Paul didn't really mean that for us, then it empties the Bible of its validity and its authority in our lives. What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to make the case that Christian is, Christianity is not only progressive, it is the only progressive message that actually holds water. It is the progressive reality for humanity. It is the way forward as humans. This is the case that I think Paul is making in Colossians chapter 3. Now, the irony that Christianity is being thought of as being not progressive um, is kind of, it's ironic. It's ironic because I would argue that Christianity has been the single greatest force for progress in human history. Would you agree? You're at church, so you're probably going to agree with me. Um, 
If I was speaking to a different crowd, you would go, probably not. But uh, let, me, let me give you some examples. Uh, Christianity actually started most of our institutional educational uh, environments. Why? Because Christians have this conviction that um, education means freedom. It means that we can read our Bibles. We can think for ourselves. So Christians, uh, if you've noticed, a lot of Christian or a lot of schools have something to do with Christianity in their roots and their foundations. A lot of hospitals and ministries and orphanages, mercy ministries, pardon me, um, have started because of Christian values, Christian conviction. Many of them, most of the orphanages in the world have a tie to a Christian worldview because our Lord Jesus taught us, right, to take care of widows, orphans, the least of these, right? That's a conviction that we have. Slavery was actually done away with in multiple countries by who? Christians who were going off their Christian conviction. William Wilberforce, with a Christian worldview perspective, is, is what was the agent of finishing or getting rid of slavery um, in England. In, in the same way, Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian. He was operating off of Christian values. So I would say, again, that the progress is being made by believing in the gospel. Gospel is a progressive message. Some of the greatest scientific progress has been made by Christians. Why? Because Christians believe that the cosmos declares the glory of God, and we want to explore it. That there is a common grace of God out there called creation, biology, science. The more we discover it, the more it gives us um, things to praise God for. Okay? Christianity is very progressive. Christianity and the Bible championed women before it was trendy to champion women. As we'll see in our text, Paul elevated women to a place that they had never before been in history, in their importance and in their role. Christianity called for monogamy and equality and fairness and love and charity and philanthropy before it was trendy to do it and put it on your Instagram. Before it was trendy to do moral things, Christianity was championing morality championing the least of these. And Christianity continues to champion what I believe history will record as the slavery and holocaust of our era, which is the termination of millions of babies. Christianity continues to champion that. And for championing that, it is thought of as being not progressive. But I would argue that Christianity is the definition of progression. It's the definition of progression to answer the question whether Christianity is progressive or not, you have to first define progress. What do we see as progress? What is that? Uh, the Bible is a progressive narrative. Okay, some people open the Bible and they think, well, it's all split into verses, so that must mean it's like an encyclopedia. I can look up anything I'm curious about and there's a verse on That's not how it's written. Some people think of it um, like, a, like, a, uh, um, like the Proverbs, you know, like every verse is a fortune cookie that has a different meaning. It's not how the Bible's written. The verses were added later. They're not inspired. The Bible is a collection of 66 books, and those 66 books paint for us a story arc, a redemptive story arc that is progressive. It is the ultimate message of progression for the human uh, culture. Okay, in Adam, or um, pardon me, in Genesis 1 and 2, we're going to be in this in a few weeks. In Genesis 1 and 2, what do you find? You find progress. You find a God who takes the raw elements of of nothingness and, and creation, and he turns it into a beautiful um, cosmos. And then within the earth, he puts a garden, and he puts man in the garden. It's very progressive. He's creating something, and he wants humanity to partner with him in that creation. He calls Adam and Eve to be part of that progress, the human progress, to fill the earth with God-glorifying, image-bearing humans. Genesis 1 and 2, very progressive. The only digression, ultimately, is Genesis 3, and that's when man takes over and says, I'm going to do what I want to do, which is to step out of the progress that God was making in the world and hook, line, and sinker believe Satan's lie, that progress could be made without God. Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Instantly, the world was taken from a place of progress to a place of degress. God's plan was not thwarted, but it was delayed. But from Genesis chapter 3, when we get the first mention, the proto-euangelion, the first mention, the first mention of the gospel, that the, the daughter, or pardon me, the, um, the, the seed of Adam and Eve would come one that would crush the head of the snake, 
we have progress from that point forward. God is progressively healing the brokenness of human history. It's a progressive message. Better garden, better Adam, better heaven, better earth, better, better, better. Go to the end of the book, Revelation 21. You know what you're going to find? Better. Everything will be better. I hate to give away the end of the story, but that's the story arc of the Bible is it was good, it got bad, now it gets better. But it gets better through God's redemptive story arc, not through our own plans. Now, if you define progression as simply the expansion of man in man-made society, then by all accounts, Genesis chapter 11 should be the most progressive moment in human history. Do you know what I'm talking about? Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, by all accounts, depending on how you measure human progress, Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel should be the ultimate progressive society. Why? Well, when, after the flood, mankind settled in one area. There was no diversity because everyone was together. There was no racial fault lines because there was no races. There was no separation of people because everyone was together. There was one language. You would think that would be the ultimate. You would think that would be like something God would be excited about, right? Except for one problem. That was never God's plan. His plan was for there to be diversity. His plan was there was for Adam and Eve to fill the earth with image-bearing, God-glorifying humans. And what they did instead was they gathered themselves in one area and built the Tower of Babel. And their, their mission statement for building the Tower of Babel was this, let us make a name for ourselves. That was the mission statement of human progress. And listen, it was an abasement to God's nature, and he did not allow it. Why? Isn't that progressive? I mean, wasn't it a progressive thing? No, it wasn't progressive because it wasn't God's plan, and it wasn't for God's glory, and it wasn't done in God's strength. It was done in man's strength. Now, the Tower of Babel is really important. It's not just a cute story that we can tell our kids in Sunday school. Okay, the Tower of Babel is theologically rich because it sets a foundation for what is considered the archetype for man's system. Okay, the man's system. If you fast forward to the book of Daniel, uh, you find this moment in Daniel chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the ancient world at the time, of the, the kingdom of Babylon, he has this dream, right? Uh, in this dream, he, he dreams of this statue, massive statue. And the statue has different, it's made out of different types of metal. The head is made of gold. The shoulders are made of silver. Uh, the torso is made of bronze, so on and so forth. And, and, and he's completely troubled by it because in the dream, this massive statue all of a sudden gets completely pummeled by this rock that's unhewn by human hands, it says. And this rock turns the statue to dust and then the rock itself, once it lands in the ground, it actually grows up into a massive mountain and overtakes the whole world. And if you're reading the book of Daniel, you're just like, what is that? But the cool thing about Daniel chapter 2 is that we find out what it means. Daniel gives the interpretation. The interpretation is this. The interpretation is that there will be many progressive one-world empires throughout all of history, starting with Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, and then eventually another one that we have not yet seen. But the, the, the thing that's the same with all of these kingdoms is they all think they're being progressive. They all think they're making the earth better by ruling it. The problem is, is they're not ruling it with God's rule. They're ruling it with man's rule. Guys, I know I'm nerding right now, but the picture is so amazing of what you see. The fact that this rock comes and annihilates the statue, and then the rock itself grows up into a mountain. You know what that's referring to? Come on, it's the Sunday school answer. Who's the rock? Okay, good job. You got it. The rock, the, the, the rock is Christ from heaven, God himself coming into this earth, ultimately to topple all of man-made system in progress, progression and in place of it to build a kingdom that's going to grow to the point where it consumes the whole earth. Can I get a witness? Something? Can I get an amen? Like, I'm pumped about that. That's exciting. We know what the true progression of human history is and what we truly need, and Christ is the foundation for that. 
And it doesn't look good, by the way, for all human systems of power that are not submitted to Christ. They're pummeled, turned to dust. It's worth noting, by the way, that in the book of Revelation, in the great cosmic end battle, the archetype of man's progress is Babylon, which has ties to Babel, which has ties to Daniel chapter 2. It's all symbolic of the system of man. And here's the reality. Since Genesis chapter 3, when Satan came down and tempted Adam and Eve with an alternative version of progress, you have always had two options of progress. Adam... Christ. Satan's version of progress, God's version of progress. Satan's kingdom, God's kingdom. And when Christ comes into this world, he makes it very clear that you have a choice to make. Which kingdom of progress will you choose? That is the question. So when we ask the question, is Christianity progressive? I would make the argument that Christianity is the only truly progressive message. Because I know what happens to the other alternative progressive messages because I've read the end of the book and it doesn't go well because God will not share his glory. He will not share his kingdom rule. He is the king of the universe, amen? And we're on the right side. So what is true progress and is Christianity truly progressive Or is it regressive? In our text, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul is unpacking for us just how progressive the Christian message is. But he's doing it in such a way that shows us what it looks like in everyday life, in every strata of human uh, sociological or socioeconomic layers. So for the slave, for the slave owner. For, for, for the female, for the male, for the child, for the father. And again, he's doing this within the context of the fallen Roman Empire world that they live within. See, when, when Christianity exploded onto the scene, um, everybody was getting saved. It wasn't just a poor person's religion. It wasn't just a rich person's religion. It wasn't just an affluential person's uh, gospel. It was everyone. You had such a mishmash of people that were coming to Christ in becoming the church. And for that reason, a lot of the New Testament is written about how in the world to get along with each other. You have Jews and Greeks, zealots and tax collectors, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, you name it. You have people at every layer of the socioeconomic scale. You have the poorest, you have the richest, and everyone in the middle. All these people were coming to Christ and they were becoming one new family. It was the most progressive thing that's ever happened in human history. The ramifications of it are still carrying on today. And so Paul is painting the picture of this, and that's what we're going to look at today. He's trying to get the Colossians to realize the full extent of the new creation life, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So let's, let's dive into it. I just want to quickly walk through the passage with you. Um, we're not going to dive too deep into it, and then I'll conclude uh, with a few points. So Colossians 3 and 4 outlines kind of like this. Now, we're going to, Matt already taught chapter, uh, the first half of chapter 3, but to get the context, to get the flow of what Paul's saying, I want to just go back briefly, and I want you to see how important the whole chapter, you know, uh, I know I've said this before, but these letters weren't written in four chapters. It's one letter. There's no verses. There's no chapters. And, and Paul's, he's getting at something. He has a flow of thought. We need to, we need to get that flow of thought. We just pull one verse out and, and leave the flow of thought we're missing something. So here's the outline, okay? And I also gave it to you. I worked hard for you this week. I put it on a piece of paper and I'm going to put it on a screen. Okay, you're welcome. Um, I was up to like one in the morning doing that last night. Okay, it outlines like this. Chapter three, verse one through four is the reality of the new creation. I'll talk about what that means. Then in chapter three, verse five through nine, Paul goes into what I'm calling the put-offs. <laughs> Uh, the put-offs of the new creation, what that means is like put off this, put off that, put off this, okay? And then he goes into, in chapter 3, 10 through 17, the put-ons of the new creation. Because your new creation, put on this, put on that. He's going to talk about putting on a new identity, new humanity, and new harmony. Then he gets into the home life of the new creation. What does the new creation of Christ look like in the home And then lastly, the witness of the new creation. Okay, so that's the outline. So let's just run through it really quick. And again, I'm not going to deep dive because I want us to get the flow of Paul's thinking. So open your Bibles. Let's get our nose in them. 
Chapter 3, verse 1. First, he talks about the reality of the new creation. Paul says this, and again, this is a review. Matt already taught this, but I'm just going to remind you of some things. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's a lot there. And again, Matt already unpacked so much of that in a phenomenal teaching last week. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But I want to summarize what Paul is getting at here. Paul is getting at the fact that Jesus is the genesis of a new creation. Okay, he's the genesis of a new creation. One of my favorite analogies of this, and it always makes me sound like a nerd, uh, but I heard Rick Boy give it one time. I thought it was so helpful. Uh, in the Star Trek movie, Wrath of Khan, it's like the 70s. Remember that? Um, Star Trek movie, you know, we're talking Jim Kirk, Spock, anybody? Hello? Anybody? The Hankins aren't here. They would be back in here now. Okay, so Spock, Jim Kirk. Spock dies in the, in the first movie, I think it is, or... I'm getting this wrong. Spock, which one does Spock die in? This is important. This is a test. Anyone? He dies in Wrath of Khan. The third movie. Okay. When Spock dies, uh, and the whole movie is about this, 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 um, I sound like such a geek right now. The whole movie is about this project called the Genesis Project. You know what Genesis means? Beginnings, okay? And the Genesis Project was this idea that they could biologically engineer um, the beginning of a planet. So they, they, they make this torpedo that if they launch the torpedo into a, like a moon or just a, a dead planet, that begins and kicks off human life. It literally takes over the entire planet. It's called the Genesis Project. So the movie ends with Spock dying. It's very gospel, okay? Spock dying, you know he's going to come back, right? Because it's Spock, you know? So Spock dies, and they jettison Spock in this torpedo tube with the Genesis Project onto a dead planet. And then the next movie comes, and life has exploded. It turned it in from like a, like a, a rock to a fully thriving ecosystem planet. It's the Genesis. What Paul is getting at here is he's saying, you have been raised with Christ. Christ is the genesis of a new creation. Remember I said the degression of creation was at the fall? Everything was broken. Everything was messed up. God has been progressively moving towards his new recreation of the universe, and it culminates in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's like a seed. When you put it in the ground, it grows, and it grows and grows and grows. The cool thing is that when you get saved, you become part of that seed. And that new creation life that explodes, you get to be part of it. In fact, it comes through your life. It's called spiritual life. Isn't that exciting? It's really cool. So Paul is getting at this new creation reality. He's saying uh, God's future kingdom is in-breaking now through the church because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We get to be part of that. That's really stinking cool. Verse 5. Then he gets into the put-offs. Put to death, therefore. Okay, now just pause right there. Because you are a new creation, Matt talked about this last week, because you have a new nature in Christ, therefore, put to death the dead stuff. Shake off the dead stuff. You are a new creature with a new nature standing with one foot in the future perfect creation, but you still have one foot in the old one. That's why you still struggle with, with sin and death and pain. He's saying you, you have one foot in this, one, one foot in that, but your new nature belongs to the new creation. Put off the old man. Put off the old sin. Put off the dead stuff. That's what he's getting at. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Earthly doesn't mean physical. It means sinful, okay? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you two once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You have been baptized, he would say, into Christ's new life. So put off the old one. Put off the old stuff. Put off the sin. Okay? That's what he's getting at there. Those are the put-offs. 
Then he gets into the put-ons. Oops, what happened? Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Okay. (laughs) Boom. Uh, He gets into the put-ons. Put on then, or verse 10, sorry. Have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We'll develop that verse a little bit more in a minute. And then he says one of the most astounding realities of the of the new creation. Are you ready? Here, where is here? Here is the church. There is not Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised. There is not barbarian and Scythian and slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. I, I just can't communicate to you guys like just how progressive of a message that was for Paul's day. In a day that really it wasn't trendy to be accepting of different cultures in Paul's day. It wasn't culturally acceptable to have diversity in your church or in your whatever. It was, it, nobody cared about diversity. Nobody cared about elevating people that were poor. Nobody cared about civil rights. Nobody cared about slaves. Nobody cared about women. Nobody cared about children. It was about power. It was about Roman power. And the gospel, the new created life, comes into the scene, and the most progressive thing Paul could have possibly imagined to say was, hey, all of that is gone in Christ. Greek, Hebrew, slave, master. All are one in Christ. I just, I can't get, because we live in 2020, I just can't get across to you how progressive that reality was in Paul's day. The book of uh, Colossians was probably sent um, by a letter carrier with another book called Philemon. And the book of Philemon is Paul arguing for a young man named Onesimus who was a slave that ripped off his master named Philemon, telling Philemon that they are now brothers. You kidding me? Brothers? Slave? Master? Brother? Do you know what brothers means in this culture? Equal. Equal. That, my friends, is progressive. In the biblical sense, it is progressive. Paul is calling them to put on the reality of the new creation, which is, verse 10, a new identity, which means new thinking, new imaging. He's put on uh, verse 10, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, bar- barbarian. I already read that. Then verse 12, put then, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Now as we read this, I just want you to see how incredibly supernatural the picture Paul is painting here of what a culture could look like. Okay? Put on Verse 12, then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Do you know why we have court systems? Because of sin. Do you know why we have squabbles? Because of sin. Paul's painting the picture of, of what a new creation life should look like. You know, he he, he uh, condemned the Corinthians for taking cases to secular court. He's like, you guys are Christians. Figure it out. You are part of the new creation life. Bearing with one another in verse 13, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect, note the word, harmony. Perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That means that your gifts that you've been given by the Spirit, they're for each other. You just pour them out. You just give them out. This is a selfless existence he's pointing to here. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What Paul is doing here is he's painting a picture of what this new creation life should look like in the church. 
You're not going to find that in the world. Good luck. Okay? You're not going to find that in the world. You, you, will, you should find that in the church. Loving each other, forgiving each other, bearing with each other's burdens, pouring into each other. That is the new humanity, the new creation fleshed out. And then Paul gets into verse 18. I know I'm going quickly, but I want you to get the flow of thought here. Paul gets into verse 18, the home life of the new creation. And this is where it starts to feel like, "Mm, this isn't a very progressive message, okay? The home life of the new creation. Let's read it. 18, wives, submit to your husbands. Every pastor squirms when they have to preach that. It's really a beautiful reality. I'll explain it. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. In Ephesians, he doesn't just say love your wives. He says love your wives like Christ loved the church. If anything should make you squirm as a man, it's that. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, uh, obey your boss. Don't just do it when he's looking. Do it when he's not looking. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, first of all, can you imagine if all you ever knew was pagan thinking and Greek thinking? And then all of a sudden, somebody comes along and they preach the gospel to you. They tell you about Jesus and this new creation life that you can become part of. And you go, okay. And the Holy Spirit comes in and you are born again. All of your pagan thinking carries in to your Christian life. Has anyone, have, has anyone experienced that? I experience it today, still, all the time. I'm like, why do I think that way? Oh, yeah, I, I was a pagan, and I still live in a pagan culture. So Paul is trying to explain to these new Christians, Colossae was a fairly new church here, this is what it looks like to live new creation life in the home. Now, why does he emphasize the home? When he talks about bond servants and masters, that's, that's home life. When he talks about husbands and wives, that's home life. There's a few reasons why he emphasizes the home life. Number one, he wants you to see new creation life in every socioeconomic class, meaning that Christianity is for everybody, but we already talked about that. Number two, he sees home as where the real you comes out. Did you know that? Home is where the real you comes out. Home is where you really let your guard down. Home is really where you, you really are your truly, fully sinful self. If the Lord can transform the way that you are behind a closed door, then he's really doing a work. That's why the qualifications of an elder in the New Testament almost all orbit around the home life. Because the, the question of someone's character is only really truly seen in their home. How they treat their kids when no one's looking. How they speak to their wife when no one's around. How they conduct themselves in the home matters. One commentator said, Christ's, Christ's lordship finds conclusive expression in the day-by-day routine experiences of life where you are most likely to show your cloven hoof. <laughs> I think that's like a, I don't even know what that means, but it's something being bad. <laughs> don't use quotes when you don't understand them. Listen, home is the front line of the battlefield in our culture and in Christianity. And is it any mistake to you that that is probably the single most attacked thing in our culture is the home? The home is attacked. Marriage is being attacked. Fidelity is attacked. Parents are attacked. We have more fatherlessness in our country than ever. And is it any surprise that we also have more drug addiction, more incarceration, Some of the deepest issues in our culture are because of a broken home environment. Paul is saying, Christians, you who are part of the new created life, not so with you. Your home is to be a source of life. And that affects every person in the home. Kids, fathers, mothers, wives, husbands, you name it. 
We'll get a little bit more into that in a minute. Chapter 4, verse 2. Let's just finish out the section. And he, he, he gives an outward look to the world. Now he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a, to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom, listen to this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, that's non-Christians, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So he lastly talks about the witness of the new creation, that the way we live in this new creation here in the church should be a witness to the lost. Now, let me get into just a few points and then we'll, we'll end here. Uh, I want to make the case to you this morning. Is my computer like... Good night, dude. Siri's like, uh-uh, you ain't preaching the gospel. Three reasons. True progress only comes in the new creation life of the gospel. Three reasons. Okay. I'm not here to make political statements. What I am here to do is to affirm and confirm that the answer to a, every human condition and issue is the gospel exclusively. Because I want you to have confidence in God's redemptive work that he's doing. Okay? So here's three reasons. Number one, human disparity will only end with the total annihilation of human depravity. This is something that the world does not understand. The problem that we have in the world is, is not really even worth bringing up because we all know what it is. People hurting each other, people killing each other, taking advantage of each other, inequality, pain, suffering, lack of justice, all of these things. We watch it on the news every night. That's the problem, human disparity. And WorldThink says, what the world says is that it, it, it's, it's not because of sin, it's because of social constructs. It's because of environments. It's because people don't have appropriate resources and education and opportunities. And if everybody had the right opportunities and education and resources and government, everything would be good. Do you agree with that? No. no. Let me prove why you cannot agree with that. In the book of Revelation, you get to chapter 20, and the craziest thing happens. Christ comes and he, he, he fights the progressive system of man and he throws the prophet and um, the uh, antichrist into hell. And you're like, whoa, okay, just hold with me. And he reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And in that thousand years, Satan is locked up. All of those who warred against him are destroyed. All of the humans on earth are under the perfect administration of Jesus Christ. But not all of them are regenerated, meaning not all of them have, been, have died in their sin nature. So you have the perfect government ruled by the perfect king in the perfect way, but sin's presence has not yet been fully eradicated. And do you know what happens? They all fight Jesus again. How is that possible? I mean, if we create the perfect environment, won't humans just do well and thrive? No. No, they won't. Sometimes they'll do okay. The issue of humanity's brokenness is sin. It's sin. That's the enemy. Sin has to die completely. Even if we have the perfect government, if sin is still allowed to be here, it ultimately will end badly. The problem is, is that the world is denying the existence of sin because it's not culturally palatable. Because they're ex denying the existence of sin, they don't know how to deal with the real issue. The gospel is the only answer for the systemic sin of humanity that we've inherited from Adam. That's why Paul says in our text in verse 3, he says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore it is earthly. Sin has to be dealt with. Paul doesn't see the primary issue of humanity as Rome and the government and the issues. He sees the primary issue as sin and sins killing people. And he deals with it. What happens if we don't believe sin is the real issue? Well, first of all, we have an accountability problem. 
We stop holding people accountability or accountable for their sin, and we start giving them excuses to excuse their sin. We have a truth problem, because if we don't believe in sin, then anybody can say anything is true. It's all subjective. I think you get where I'm going here. If, if we don't believe sin is the issue, we have an end times problem, because that means Jesus doesn't need to come back. We can figure it out. We just need to get our government right. We just need to get our programs right. We just need to get our society right. We can fix it. Can we fix it? No. That's why to gain entrance into salvation, to gain entrance into Jesus' kingdom, you have to die spiritually. You have to die and be born again. Because if you carry your deep sin nature into God's kingdom, you'll ruin it. There can be no sin in God's eternal kingdom. Number two, human disunity can only come through a new human identity. Human disunity will only come through a new human identity. And the problem is, is that humans are not getting along. Never have. Nations are killing nations. People are killing people. The world is, it's, it's, it's in turmoil right now. Have you noticed? People hate each other. We're in one of the most politically charged climates I've ever seen. I've only been alive for 30 years. But, but for a while. <laughs> that point kind of just dropped, didn't it? 31 years. Boom. It's tense out there. Why? Because humans don't get along. Why do humans not get along? It's in. Okay. What is the gospel answer to this? The gospel answer to this is not what the world is holding forth. Right now, the world is saying, if you are just educated enough, enlightened enough, woke enough, I know that term has baggage, but hear me, if you, if you have enough enlightenment, then we'll all get along and sing Kumbaya. Bull. It's not true. Some of the most educated people in our country right now are doing the most political polarization I've seen. They're hating each other. Education and enlightenment, all these things, is not fixing the problem of humans killing and hating humans. What fixes the problem of humans killing and hating humans? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, first of all, realizing that your identity is not your diversity. The world is trying to make people think that their deepest identity is their diversity. They're connecting your identity to their diversity in such a way that if you tell someone you don't agree with their lifestyle, then you, they think you just told them that you hate them. Let me give you an example. If we elevate someone struggling with or having a homosexual tendency to their identity, and then I come along as a Christian and I say, hey, my Bible says that's actually harmful for you. I don't want you to do that. It's, it's actually damning if it's unrepentant. Then they say, you hate me. And I say, no, I don't hate you. I hate the sin. Like, no, because my identity is my sexual decisions. The world is elevating our differences to our identity. What should our identity be? First of all, as humans, it should be that we are made in the image of God. Why do we respect people that think differently as Christians? Why do we respect non-Christians? Why do we respect, why should we respect everyone, care about every human life? Because every human life is created in the image of God. Therefore, every human life has value. So even if somebody disagrees with me, I need to respect them, love them, cover them. That's why our government has a responsibility to cover everyone, right? Because we are all image bearers. But you only believe that if you believe God created everyone. But there is a deeper level of unity that comes with the gospel here that Paul is getting at. The deeper level of unity is more than just, yeah, we're all made in the image of God. The deeper level of unity is that we have become one in Christ. Did you know that you are closely, more closely connected eternally, spiritually, even physically to the people sitting next to you than you are even your own blood family? The connection that you have with the church is the deepest familial connection that you have. And so it really, it really that is the only answer to hating each other. The church should be the poster child for true cultural, racial unity and diversity and equality. We should be modeling for the world in such a way, getting along with people that are different than us, getting along with people of different cultures. We should be doing it so well that the world looks at the church and goes, wow, they can do it. But in order to do that, we have to understand just how one we really are. 
just how united we really are. Do you understand that in Jesus' 12 disciples, there was literally a Herodian, or pardon me, there was literally a tax collector which worked for Rome. He was a sellout, a Jewish sellout. There was a tax collector and a zealot. You know what a zealot was? They hated Rome. Those guys had to hang out every day. Can you imagine that? I mean, the Paul's list here uh, of oneness is a Greek Jew. Greeks and Jews were like oil and water. Barbarians, Scythians. Scythians were despised by Greeks. I mean, talk about crazy. These guys had every reason not to fight. We're like talking Israeli and Palestinian on crack, right? These guys hated each other. And they found a way to become one family because their deepest union was in Christ. The answer to the disunity of the world is a new humanity in Christ. And we should be modeling that. That's why it's so detrimental to the gospel when we fight with each other. And you will have such a temptation over the next week to be a keyboard warrior and destroy your Christian brothers and sisters over political problems. And you might even be right. I don't care. I don't care. Look at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. But he's a Democrat! I don't care! Don't... Give over your witness because you are right. You might not even be right. You don't know. We are to be seasoned with salt. And just because... Never mind. I'm going to end there. (laughs) Sharing your truest identity does not eliminate your diversity. Did you know that? We are to be diverse. God created a diverse creation. He did that on purpose. But our diversity is not what we find unity in. It's Christ. Christ is what we find unity in. Last point, and then I'm going to shut up. Uh, Human society will only thrive through Christ-like Trinitarian harmony. Christ-like. So the, the lie right now is that maybe it's just authority that's evil. Maybe it's just authority. Maybe we should just get rid of all the police. We should just get rid of government. We should just get rid of, of, of all of the authority structures because that seems to be the problem because authority always seems to get corrupt, and that's true. But what I want you to see here in, 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 this, in this passage, the controversial passage here, verse 18, wives submit to husbands, husbands love your wives, children obey your parents, fathers do not provoke. Notice that he's ticking both people under authority and people in authority. Do you notice that? Do you notice what he's not doing? He's not getting rid of authority structures. He's not doing that. He's not saying there shouldn't be bosses. And by the way, I don't have time to get into this. I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards if you're curious. Um, bond servant and master is nothing like the slavery that you're imagining in our country. Very different reality. Paul doesn't encourage it. He speaks out against the sin in it. But don't assume that the Bible is being pro-slavery here. It's absolutely not. And in fact, the Bible was the champion of anti-slavery in human history. Amen? Okay. I just I don't have time to get down that road. But What he is doing here is he's not breaking down the authority structure. He's saying the authority structure needs to be redeemed and sinless. So fathers, love your kids. Don't be harsh with them. He knows our sin proclivities, isn't he? He knows it's a temptation as a dad to run down your kid, to, to say harsh words. Wives, he knows the sin proclivity. The sin proclivity is to rule over the husband. And he says, not so with you. Submit to your husbands. Now, by the way, Paul could have said, obey your husbands. That's not what he did. He didn't say that because that would have been a very different reality. It's not obey your husband. It's submit to your husband. Submit submit means I'm going to lay down my rights to follow you even if you're wrong. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus took the role of the submitted. Did you know that? Did you know that in your marriage as husband and wife, both of you have opportunity to model the Godhead? Because the Father had to steward the life of Christ, and Christ had to surrender to the authority of the Father. He did it. You know, the problem is is that in our culture, we think that to be under someone's authority means that you're less valuable. That is a sinful construct. Was Christ less valuable than the Father? No. Well, why was he submitting and surrendering to the Father then? Maybe submitting and surrendering has nothing to do with value. Because, see, we have this idea that the guy in the boardroom sitting at the end, he's the most important player. Not so in the kingdom of Christ. Jesus says the least of these. He flips the whole thing around. He says, bondservants, masters, whoever you are, your true identity and treasure is in Christ, not in your differences. 
He calls each role into its unique and loving design. The problem with authority is not authority. Did you know that? In fact, there'll be authority in heaven. The problem with authority is sin. Sinful authority. It's husbands abusing their wives, not respecting their wives, not loving their wives. It's wives trying to manipulate their husbands with their emotion or their beauty or their sexuality. It's children not obeying their parents. It's masters not taking care of and respecting their servants or employees. It's bosses who are crummy bosses that are sinful and are taking advantage of people. That's the problem, not authority structures. And don't miss Paul's point here, by the way. Everyone has a boss. Everybody has a boss. Wife, your husband, who you have a hard time submitting to because he's kind of a doofus, he will answer to his authority. And do you know who his authority is? Yeah, it's the father. That scares me more than being under authority. I'll be honest. Everyone has a boss. Everyone answers to someone. Everyone has someone over them. Okay, I'm going to close because I really want us to have some good conversation. I just have, yeah, I'm not even going to get into these last two thoughts. The gospel is truly progressive, but it is not a progressive ideology or a progressive philosophy. It is the ultimate progressive reality. You can either tune into it or you can tune out of it. But I would encourage you guys that when you confront the world with the truth, that you would do so in such a way that is salt. Because our witness is directly connected to it. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for these these passages, Lord, that remind us, God, that, that you really know what you're doing. I thank you for this new creation life that we're pulled into. I thank you that we get to live it out and model it for the world. I thank you that the way we love our wives our husbands, our kids, the way that we work, the way that we uh, run companies, the way that we do everything reflects your new kingdom, your creation, new creation, the gospel. It reflects it all. Help us to do that well, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that we'd be in the midst of our conversation now as we dive into these things. Lord, I pray we could edify and encourage each other with our thoughts and words. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.